0: Welcome to this delicious episode of the Level Design Podcast, where we look at the world of game development through a lens of level design. We continue our inquisition of our own team with a deep dive into all that is Rob McLaughlin. Let's get on with the show. Hello, welcome back to another wonderful episode of the Level Design Podcast. As we've been doing, we've been talking to our lovely Jonathan. Hello Jonathan, you're with us again.
1: Yeah, it's always good to be back. It's not my turn in the hot seat this time, so it's going to be fun. <laughs>
0: you're on the other side of the Inquisition. Exactly. And Valentina is also joining me again.
2: Hi everybody from the very cold and foggy Scotland. Is it cold
0: and foggy? It's like nice and warm down here.
2: Yeah, it's like Silent hmm.
0: Ooh. I always love taking Ooh. pictures of like fog and start making exponential height fog jokes. But yeah. And of course, we should welcome our colleague and guest, which is the wonderful Rob McLaughlin. Welcome, Rob. Hello,
3: welcome. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here and to be on the other side of the interview table. It's very, very hot in my home office at the moment, so I definitely feel like I've got the lights of uh, interrogation on me.
0: You should set up like a little like desk lamp just pointing into your eyes and like, we have ways of making you talk, Rob, <laughs> into, a, into a microphone whilst recording it.
2: Have we agreed on the good cop, bad cop technique, who is being who? Or are we just all bad
0: <laughs> I, I think we should just confuse them by, like, alternating. <laughs> no one can really tell who's a good cop. There's enough of us here. It's like three people trying to do
1: it. I think you're going to run into
0: problems. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be confused. Wait, am I meant to be nice? Are we all just being nice cops? But anyway, so Rob, you've been on the podcast since day one, as well as Jonathan. And at the time, you had recently joined the Chinese room right when we kicked off the episode it just times really weird this was like a year ago that we were doing this year and 15 months ago that we've kicked off the podcast around April yeah 2019 that's
3: right So I've been at the Chinese room for 18 months now it feels like a very long time ago part of that's due to incredible circumstances but uh yeah it's uh I'm really pleased to be at the Chinese room and um I feel very proud to be there
0: because you just—I mean, the—I say you like you by yourself, but the Chinese Room just just released Little Orpheus as a iOS game on the Apple Store. That's right. right. Uh, We are we are
3: Apple Arcade. Sorry. Correct. That's completely right. It's uh, next uh, the most recent game on Apple Arcade. It's the first uh, game released by the new Chinese Room, uh, reborn, and uh, yeah, it's uh, people seem to love it a lot. It's really really. A really really colorful and fun adventure uh, very very different to the games that um, we've made before and uh yeah i highly encourage you all to s- use your free subscription to apple arcade and <laughs> download it and play it
0: right we, we did say we weren't going to do too many game promos, yeah. but you know i guess you get a free pass
3: i was just gonna ask a little bit like that.
1: what was the process like because you said obviously it's very different to what i guess the chinese room's done in the past and obviously this is the first game you've put out it's like what was the transition or the period like going to something like that or even working with apple arcades because it's a a new kind of a newish platform in itself it's a new thing to deal with
3: yeah i think it was very new for everyone we were building a whole team from scratch when i joined the company in november uh, 2018 there were there were three of us in this studio in the old chinese room studio which dan Pinchbecker kept on it was. Uh, it's a very very strange place in Brighton. the the, the atmosphere is of a set from a nineteen eighties episode of The Bill, with very strange <laughs> uh, aluminium and glass dividers. It was all very dark and empty, with all the kind of detritus of previous eras of um, the Chinese rooms scattered around. And from there, we we built up a team from scratch. All these wonderful designers and artists and programmers. And I think that. Dan was really keen to make a game that wasn't an introspective kind of emotional experience that the Chinese room has been previously known for, but something that's just about joy and stories and adventure. And so Little Orpheus is is a kind of a celebration of the power of stories. We have this sort of fabulist called Ivan Ivanovich, who is a um, kind of Baron Munkhausen style figure who... Uh, goes on an incredible journey to the centre of the earth and then spins all sorts of tall tales to get himself out of trouble with a very menacing Russian general.
0: That, that's the best way for having your Russian generals in a menacing <laughs> <laughs> I've been a massive fan of, of the Chinese room. I think one, one of the games that I've kind of pointed to that actually kicked me off to wanting to, to start doing games is Diarrester. I I, I guess you guys can't see it, and the audience can't see it, but it's just in the background. I have a, a map of the island of the I have
3: the same map on my wall
0: by the lovely Rosa Cabo Mascarel, which I'm still trying to figure out the whole puzzle in it. But it's like a kind of very small little. Rob might be able to help you.
3: Yeah, know he might. He might have some clues. I love to. I love to ask Dan sometime. But yeah, <laughs> it's. Uh, I've definitely Esther is one of the one of the reasons why I amongst all the other amazing games that came out along with Esther when people started saying you know you can make a actually deep and meaningful experience and something that is really a valuable experience just as a, a game that where you you travel through a space and explore things I I, I found it it was it was one of the sort of houses, one of the searchlights that was, that was leading me onwards when I uh, went off on my own and worked as an indie developer for two years
0: because before the Chinese room you were working you had your own one person studio which was I, I guess I don't know it's, I don't know how many people in the Lost Forest games right? yeah
3: so it was it was mainly me but um, I had some really incredible incredibly talented people who helped me I should call some of them out first and foremost a guy called Neil Williams who was a lead artist at Climax where I'd previously worked and he was also branching out on his own and he came on board with Lost Forest for a few months and totally transformed the game he's a, a wonderfully straightforward chap with uh, punk hair who completely says what he thinks he doesn't care about niceties of saving people's feelings or anything like that he'll just say no that's shit <laughs> and <laughs> force you to do it again he'll say oh that sounds a bit rubbish he'll say that and he'll just say oh yeah it does actually He's a great one for puncturing any sort of pomposity and meandering f- f- a foolishness in your ideas. And also, some really brilliant people uh, Matt Gibbs from Tail Spinners and from um, Furious B. I worked with Lizzie Atwood, who did some of the coding for me because I'm a total non coder, and David Walters, who also helped with the code. And we had Jason Raval and Sam Ibbotson from the Bristol Games Hub, who were really fantastic help with art and code respectively and uh, some other freelancers as well including one of my good friends aaron miller who was a vfx artist at climax he did a full soundtrack for me 14 amazing tracks which i still have i hope we'll release them sometime and he also did all the vfx for winter hall for the demo that we did and some other people that i i kind of just found through sort of trawling art station and putting out ads some graduate students and Christopher that we both of course yes Christopher and um, the uh, really good concept artist it was an incredible two years it opened my eyes to parts of the industry that I had never really appreciated before because I'd always been either insulated from them or I just didn't really realise how important they were to making a game
0: I guess working for a a big company there's a lot of stuff that's taken care for you you know getting builds out you know or (laughs) yeah
3: i i I, you can't see it with dear listeners but i'm i'm clapping my hand to my head at that time because it was my responsibility to set up the perforce server it was my responsibility to get builds out to people it was my responsibility when i logged into the perforce server to back it up and started deleting it instead and a a five minute job of of backing it up turned into a two and a half day job of retrieving it from backups after I would deleted it trying to back it up. So that was horrendous.
1: I think we kind of touched on it a little bit before in, like, previous episodes, but it's kind of like you step out of that bubble, right? As soon as you take that, like, dip into working for an indie studio or, like, you did going out on your own, suddenly everything kind of becomes your responsibility. And, like, you said you got to work with some, over those two years, with some, like, really great and talented people that helps you, but it's still kind of all on you. So it's like that doesn't really ever go away, whereas I guess previously, like, you've had the shelter have only ever been kind of focused in your bubble sort of thing and you've been cushioned
3: from the rest of it yeah completely right Jenny it's like you are privileged and uh, like you say insulated from that you you kind of don't have a handle on the fact that the work that you are doing and that your team are doing is costing real money and when you when that money is coming out of your business bank account uh, when you log on in the morning and you go on Slack and someone says what am I doing today that is in a, a very intense experience that's totally unlike the normal game studio thing of sitting down with the producer and say him saying or here are you saying how long do you think this will take how long do you think that will take how long do you think this will take for your team can you schedule your team and stuff and yeah it's 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 it, it was a it was an incredible drop of privilege there to realize that if i screwed up that it was money going down the drain, like before my eyes.
1: So I guess in that in that time, like of the two years of doing that, like, how much content creation did you actually get to do? Because obviously you're responsible for almost everything else. And obviously previously in other roles you would get to design some content or you would work with other content creators and actually do that with them. Like, did you get to do much of the content creation in that time?
3: Yeah, I did. So I did all the level design. I created the kind of world structure and did the blueprint that Kind of ran the game the coders who helped me they created the narrative sort of conversation tree system for me and all the tools that required from that so we got an open source tool called i think it's called twine or something like that which was a kind of a visual editor for linking together conversation nodes and they wrote some c++ code which got all those nodes and munged it into a great big string which then came into the editor and then magically came out the other side into these conversations which i could write and also my good friend Matt Gibbs who wrote all the conversations for me, he used this these tools to make the conversations. But from from my point of view, what you've pointed out there is what was one of the most difficult things in my job was knowing that there was a lot I was meant to be doing and I had to do. But but at the same time I was responsible for saying, Yes, that's good. No, that's not right. Here's the spec for this, here's the spec for that. Oh, you finished that early. Well then can you do that? To give you an idea of the the cash flow situation. So I at the peak the peak month, I think it was uh, ten thousand pounds was going out to various contractors and stuff in a, in one month. I think the, the usual thing is about six 000, about the six thousand pound mark going out every month. And all this was made possible by me being part of this conversa- uh, this competition, I should say, which was run by Epic Games and uh, the Welcome Trust because I pitched my game Winter Hall, which was sort of set around the, um, the the Black Death of 1348 and this matched with the Wellcome Trust's desire to have games that had a kind of public health angle. So it had a kind of kind of an educational slant to it in that the setting and set of the game was meant to immerse people into a kind of quite correct and accurate version of what the Black Death was like, to an extent, but then it had this sort of supernatural wrapping to enable you to travel through time and experience these things. Seeing that amount of money go out and and realising that, yeah, if you, if you didn't have anything for someone to do, you'd be paying someone £200 a day to do nothing. That focuses the mind.
2: What, what do you prefer working as in a smaller bubble where you're more focused and, you know, your work is a little bit more strategic and you know exactly what you'll be doing or do you prefer having that freedom but also at the same time, it sounds kind of scary to have to deal with all of that at the same time with creating a game.
3: I think I am addicted to using tools to make games. I really love that. I don't think I ever want to be in a position or at a studio where I don't ever touch the tools that make the game and actually creating levels, creating blueprint scripts or anything like that that is actually making something happen on screen i think i'd be really sad if if i lost that the that's a big payoff right totally yeah there's a feedback loop that you get from games
0: and from social media that you like something or people like something that you post you got
3: this not adrenaline loop is you know you get like it's such a such a rush isn't it when you do something and it works on screen
0: Exactly, right? So, like, you know, you, you you can now press the mouse button and something shoots and, and then you code some more and something blows up. It's like,
3: whoa, you
0: know? But you don't get that feedback loop when you have to tell somebody, now go and write some VFX.
3: No, you're, you're right, yeah. And even though it's an incredibly important job and when we think about the kind of massive creators that we kind of idolise, I suppose, like Neil Druckmann and Corey Barlog and people, you know, they they are overwhelmingly responsible for a large proportion of the success of their games, yet they don't touch it. And I, I feel like I would I would hate to lose that. And if I did, if or when or whatever, if I do go back to the indie life, I would just want to do it with someone who would compliment me and be more comfortable doing those kind of things. Because I really think that I although I can do some of that, and although I couldn't at first, and I I learned how to do some of those things. There were some things about that that you talked about, Valentina, that I just never really enjoyed massively, and I the effort that my brain had to, to make to get me to do it was not a was not a sufficient for the feedback that I got from having done it right.
2: I also think because you had created your own company from scratch, that that is a huge challenge so I don't think I can compare it to like you said Neil Dragman or Hiro Kojima that I already have I already have an engine I already have a previous games made and they already have the tool base to just maybe reuse the AI, reuse some of the animations to create something new your your pressure is like coming from from, you have to create everything from scratch so that is even worse in a way I guess uh, because creatively you have to deal with all of that and then create the game.
3: Yes Absolutely. And it's, it's a, to, to think about having to do your VAT return or your accounts at the same time as wanting to work out how to fix this bit of gameplay or this script or tell someone to do something. There, there's, a, there's a whole lot of things that you're juggling all the time. I was lucky enough that my, my wife joined me for um, the final six months of, of Winter Hall. And she took over almost all the administration tasks and also did game scripting, which she'd never done before. And uh, that was a massive help for my sanity. But even with that, I, I crunched worse on my own project than I ever have on anything that I've done for any, anything anyone else, and that was a really dumb thing to do.
1: Obviously, crunch is bad, but you have a, a vastly bigger personal stake in this than what you've had in yeah. anything you've probably ever worked on. So I feel that's why you drove yourself.
3: Yeah, it was bound up in my soul, if you like, about the success of what I was doing because it was so personal to me that I, it was my game that uh, I I felt that I had to do it. You know, I crunched for, what, three months very heavily and it took me about three months to recover from that, So where I, where I did almost no work at all because I was recovering from it, so... It was, it was okay because it was, a, in some ways, because there was a deadline at the end of those three months and I met the deadline and it was okay. We didn't win the competition, we came second. So it was kind of worth it, but at the same time, it was it was not the most pleasant of times.
0: Now, this is the thing that I would just say, get a producer. Yes, exactly.
3: <laughs> yeah. A producer and somebody who understands <laughs> marketing and business and stuff like
0: that, yeah. yeah. One thing that we should talk about, because I think we have to do a whole episode about these individual projects that people have worked on, but one thing that we should really talk about because this is that's the elephant in the room uh, is the fact that you worked on Silent Hill franchise right? Uh, when you were at Climax.
3: Yeah, I worked on Silent Hill Origins and about half of Silent Hill Shattered Memories while I was at Climax. Yeah, I, I really look back on working on those projects with a lot of fondness, even though I left Shattered Memories for a variety of reasons. I think that... I'm I'm very proud to have been a part of it. And I think those two games, in terms of the circumstances in which they were created, are very, very worthwhile.
0: But this is a kind of like very... Not different because I'm going to say... Because I saw um, Winterhall. And that was a, a little bit of a... I'm going to say it's a horror game, even though it maybe isn't. But if, if when I looked at it was... Yeah, you know, I think I'd be scared playing it even though I played it in a very
3: open area in the epic booth at, at Develop but it created it created two shrieks when we showed it at uh, Develop one one person oh. there was there was a little sort of ghost girl who follows you around and talks to you. Most people saw her coming and sort sort oh what's that? And some people sort of stepped back and tried to run away from her a bit. But one person never even saw her coming and was looking at a tree or something. And then looked down again to his <laughs> side and there was this girl there and he went, Aah! and shrieked out in EGX. That was brilliant.
0: Little girls appearing next to you is always scary. <laughs> I think that alone makes it a success. Getting that shriek.
3: There you go. success, yeah, exactly. Done. That's it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that's how you got the, the, the mega grant. That was like tick, done. But from from a level design perspective I was uh, doing a little bit of research this this weekend for reasons and I've noticed, and I don't know if it's a technology thing, and and now that I have you on the hot seat so to speak, is that I'm noticing that a lot of horror has got, in in the design of the corridors and and, and the rooms, a lot of 90 degree angles, and I don't know if it's an engine thing because of of the games that I'm looking at, or it's a it's required for that because let's say if you have a, a you know a curving a sweeping corridor for example, mm. you know you see things coming a, a lot a lot further away. And I'm gonna get this wrong and, and please shout at me. There's one origins or is it shattered memories that you are the truck driver? Uh, origins is the
3: truck driver. Yeah, Travis Gray. Oh, that, that's yeah, origins. Origins, right. We'll have to uh, ask. For, and... Direct all these questions to Valentina. She knows them all.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a huge challenge Hill fan, but I'm listening to everything right now. I'll. Tell Brilliant. you all my
0: questions. <laughs> so in, in that, I noticed again that, again, the, the, the level design was very uh, straight corridors yep. and very 90 degree angles because you have to get right up to the corner to, to suddenly wait for the camera to switch. And Yeah. Is, is, it, is this an intentional thing?
3: Yes, I would say it is. And there are a variety of reasons for it. One of the prime reasons is simply that real world architecture is a lot like that. You know, a lot of real world architecture is straight lines and right angles because it is very. It's much easier to build things in straight lines with right angles than not. It's much easier to plan out a building like that and to fill it with rooms and corridors. And also, I will sort of bring up the familiar thing of visibility blocking. It's not such an issue in the way we made Origins because the way that that was technically created was that you would never render anything behind any of the doors that you went through. So each room was all that was there. So there were limits on the complexity of the room that you could create. For example, in the theatre in Origins, which is uh, in the auditorium, where there's all the lines of seats and things, that was probably one of the most technically challenging things to get a a reasonable frame rate in, just because every single seat back was it was a polygonal and there was not like in the town where you had the advantage of the fog to hide stuff that was far away. It was it was all, all kind of there on show. Some of the areas in Origins that were very, very tiny, you know, it would be just like a, a single short length of passageway that would be from door to door. So you'd go to the door, use it, the game would stream in the next bit yeah. and then teleport mm-hmm. you to the next bit and then you'd be there and that's that's in that kind of resident evil early resident evil way that's that's how that worked so
2: so the theater if i remember correctly was probably one of the biggest yeah. levels in that game because i remember it was a lot of uh, corridors uh, claustrophobic like tighter areas and the theater had like a puzzle also with the um, stage wasn't it where you enter you actually went that's into right. I don't know how to explain, into the the, the... the other
3: world, we called it.
2: What was happening in the stage, yeah, yeah. And, oh, um, yeah, and
3: yeah, the, you're completely right. The theatre had a, a theme of it, which was about the Tempest. So we...
2: You went inside the play, kind of, right? It was uh, am I, If I'm correct, yeah. You're completely
3: yeah, yeah. right. So um, you would go onto the stage and move various levers, which would move different bits of scenery around to create kind of patterns. And if you got the correct pattern, the whole back of the stage would because it was a mirror would become a a portal so the the big thing in in origins was that any mirror that you found if you went through it you'd you'd end up in the in the other world that puzzle was was all about the themes of the tempest with uh, caliban as, as the kind of the other as the kind of the feared other and Alessas who was sort of heroine of well, heroine and antagonist of Silent Hill, if people <laughs> don't don't know about Alessa. I think we're we're well past seen Cena limitations. This is just a Valentina and Rob cool. chat podcast.
2: Alessa's a big thing in Silent Hill games like what? So so <laughs> yeah. she she she's the idea the, the the
3: story was that she saw the play and it made a big impression on her. So the kind of rough justification for the other world in Silent Hill, although I think personally it goes a bit deeper than that is that it is formed of Alessa's internalisation of things that she sees. So in the f- in Silent Hill 1, it was meant to be an evocation of the sort of boiler room type place that she was taken to when she was burned. And, um, and we carried on that theme to some extent, that the things that she saw when she was in the town were then reflected back into the the different other worlds that you saw, so that we our other worlds were were very different. So you'd go to Prospero's library in in the in the theatre, which was with uh, nothing like the kind of wire mesh and rusted metal that you normally saw in the other world. It was a kind of weird Edgar Allan Poe style library that you'd go into, and yeah, it was it was really lovely to be able to try these different things and to bring a little sort of interesting spin on each, on the other world in all these different scenarios.
2: Rob, I have another question for you, which I'm I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer if it's a bit more of a business question. Uh, But if I remember correctly, Silent Hill 5 Homecoming came out in 2008 and Silent Hill Origins was just maybe one year before that or two. So the difference is, well, the difference between those two games is, like huge uh, Silent Hill Homecoming feels like more of a an Americanized type of horror game and was if I remember was that I think it was on PS3 that it came out whereas Origins is on PS2 and it feels a lot closer to Silent Hill 2 and Silent Hill 3 did you know why there was such a big difference between those two games and they they weren't like long apart um so what was the direction? Why, why was the direction for Origins so much closer to the previous games?
3: Yeah. So my understanding of the situation, and uh, as part of the theme that we were talking about earlier, where I was insulated from a lot of the decisions and money spending and you know worries about running a studio when I was just working as a lead level designer at Climax, I I don't know the the whole story. My understanding is that Konami USA were very keen to carry on silent hill as a franchise and there were some particular people there who were very keen on it and i think they generally were good people i think they they were really they really loved silent hill so so origins was actually a psp game really so it was made for the psp in some ways the psp is is graphically more powerful than ps2 so that if you ever play it the the, the resolution and the torch is uh, in Origins on the PSP is significantly better than on the PS2 and it runs at a higher frame rate. However, that being said, it was made with PSP title. It was backported to PS2 at the same time as because it was easy enough in Renderware Studio, which we used to make it to, to create a PSP version, a PS2 va- version. My understanding was that Climax had a LA studio which was working on Origins and had won that because they were in America. So, you know, being in the right place helps a lot. Sometimes it is just the people you meet and the, the place you are when something happens that gets you the gig. Uh, so this was a, a big coup for Climax. Unfortunately, there were there were some big tech issues with Silent Origins as it was being worked on in LA. My understanding was that some internal Climax tech was not ready and they got a bit in trouble really. Because we had just finished our game Ghost Rider, which was using Renderware Studio, Ghost Rider was, was a pretty fun little game to work on, where it was kind of like a Devil May Cry clone, really. But it wasn't it was it wasn't that bad. And it had these kind of racing sections in it. Apocryphally, uh, it only had the racing sections in it because Sony got a bit confused about which Climax Studio was which. And they thought they were going to get a racing game, as in made by <laughs> Brighton, who made racing games. Instead, they ended up with right. an action game made by Climax Portsmouth, which made action games. It's so.
1: a nice no surprise. This is like, yeah. it still
3: had a little bit of racing in. <laughs> I, I wonder what they've made of that, but I, yeah, you know, <laughs> the game got made and we got paid. So I think it was all okay. I bet you there's like some executive there going like, I
0: am sure it was a racing game.
3: So <laughs> <laughs> some of the tech that was in Ghost Rider, it's a third person game where you walk around it had cameras that would follow you. It had the area streaming system. We knew how to make the game. We knew how to script the game, uh, a third-person game like that. Basically, the, the project was transferred to us at Climax Solent, Climax Portsmouth because we'd just come off this Ghost Rider, and it was like, we've got to finish this, guys, because there was not much time left. And that game was made in, I think it's about six months. Which is wow. for, for the for the uninitiated, that's that's very short for a game. When it came to us, it had we had the town, most of the town. We did we did substantially rework the mesh for the town, but most of the town was there, and maybe a few other little bits. Coincidentally, I think that if you Google theater floor plan, I think both myself and the climax LA people had found the same theater floor plan, which is really really nice, which had some nice curved corridors in and a lovely load of little back rooms behind the stage so I basically just copied that floor plan to make the to make the level and populated it with the gameplay that I wanted. Only subsequently did I find that they had also done the same thing so they'd chosen the same theatre floor plan to make their theatre level but it was very different to mine. Anyway to cut a long story short we made this game in a very short amount of time. Unfortunately the story was kind of out of our hands in that the the cutscenes the FMV cutscenes that had been rendered for the beginning and end and middle of the story had already been made so we couldn't change the story because these beats were there and you couldn't you couldn't just like change everything because I don't think if we'd had 18 months and the ability to do anything that we would have made origins origins was quite a special project where we had to revert to what had worked in previous Silent Hill games and go you know what we just have to make a Silent Hill games that is quite derivative and I fully admit is quite derivative. Some of the mechanics that we brought into it were bad. I think the uh, destructible weapons were an attempt to make it interesting to explore things but everyone just ended up carrying seven portable TVs around and chucking them at enemies and your, your, your baseball bat would last about three hits before it broke and it was so frustrating and, but you know that's that's the way it is i think when you've got that short amount of time you have to kind of just go with what has worked before and just try and get it done really game development is, is a it's a fickle beast one of the things i
0: did many moons ago uh when i started doing this i did a virtual reality uh, environment which is based on uh, brixton academy a gig so i find theatres really interesting because of that are oh, such strange places aren't they? yeah uh the, the amount of back stage space is a lot more than you imagine like for example the brixton academy from the front of the stage to the back of the auditorium you know where all the seats are is the same distance as it is from the front of the stage to the
3: back wall of the, yeah. the stage yeah And you've got this incredibly huge door in the back of most theatres where they bring in big sets of stuff. So it's like a door that goes, you don't realise that behind all those curtains and scenery and stuff, there's just a hole that goes outside the building. It's really creepy to me. It's
2: all about the illusion. Yeah.
3: But hey, come on, like, you got to work
0: on Ghost Rider i mean that's <laughs> you peaked. <laughs> that was the peak <laughs> that, that's a peak i think it, it wasn't it wasn't a great <laughs> film. we all got taken up to um
3: the sony uh, cinema in london they've got a little private cinema in the sony building in london i don't know if they still have it but they did then and um we got taken up there in limousines from portsmouth we drove up the a3 wow. oh, in, wow. in limousines mm. with really Fancy. shitty cheap champagne in the back it was uh Really funny. Uh Yay. and we saw this movie and there were a load of film critics there watching it as well. And we all piled in and were like Way. and the film critics just watching it going, Oh, it's just a terrible movie. I don't think it was that bad. It wasn't as bad as the the Wicker Man.
2: Wait, you wait Ghost Rider, the Ghost Rider oh, with yeah. Nicolas yeah, yeah. Cage? Oh yeah. and, god. Um,
3: the the great thing was when we drove back out, by the time we got back out it was like peak London crowds traffic. uh London traffic Peatland uh-huh. crowds that you don't get nowadays of course but the whole streets and if this is soho so that's what the same thing is and the limousine just couldn't get out of these soho streets and eventually he pulled this really dodgy maneuver around a corner and there was a horrible grinding noise from underneath the limousine <laughs> and halfway down Oops. halfway down the a3 just near Basingstoke the limousine suddenly ground to a halt because he had pulled all the oh, stuff god. from underneath it and the engine just cut out and he just sort of stopped and said oh guys I'm going anywhere you better walk home and it's like what? <laughs> it's like how can we walk home so he walked for like five miles to get to a train station and got like the last train back to god that was a what a night I mean, uh, thank God for Uber being invented. Yeah, absolutely, man. this is my... <laughs> uh, in, in between all of
0: this, you also did a little pit stop at a small company called Creative Assembly. That's
3: right, yeah. So this was when Shattered Memories was going on. So uh, for Shattered Memories, uh, I was there for about half the development and um, it was a really brilliant game to work on. I think it's the, probably definitely top five of the game's created for the wii i'm not biased at all honest it made such good use of the it was wii there more than five
0: games made for the Wii? <laughs> well there you go <laughs> <laughs> See? that's how we easily Mark. get
3: in um it uh, made really good use of the Wii Remote, so you could look around the screen with a torch it could answer your phone by holding the Wii Mote oh. up to your face and it would talk to you if it, as if it was like a phone had this amazing um psych evaluation system which ran through the game, so if you looked at things in the environment, or did certain things, or chose certain options, it would change these invisible sliders that that judged you in terms of uh, your kind of sexual deviancy and attentiveness and your your kind of the qualities of your personality. It was all sort of based on sort of Myers Briggs personality evaluations. It was such a lovely game to work on, just because the game the environments were so dense with kind of meaning and gameplay that the player almost didn't see and some really lovely sort of lynchian kind of sub-stories that you could find by creeping around and and listening to echoes of things from the past. It was such a f- sort of full-featured and game was sort of stuffed with meaning and everything.
2: Uh, it was a really interesting game because like you said it had all these details that you couldn't actually see or the game didn't tell you about like for example looking at a poster for too long and if you had some something specific on it then it would judge you depending on that and I remember playing it I think uh, was it her name was Sybil the police officer right and I'm, in my playthrough she wore like normal cop outfit and then I went on YouTube to take a look and there was this she was there sitting with a sexy cop outfit I'm like, wait wait is this the same game what is that? what's happening and then I read about it and it's it was so interesting and and playing it a second time and playing it differently even the small little details where um you know, in the Psychovels where you have to like um, paint over a house and then you can suddenly have a Barbie house in Silent Hill with the people ha- wearing pink costumes. It was like, <laughs> it was really unique as a game. and um, But it was interesting because it was so different from the actual first one. Was Why was there such a big difference, do you think? Was it a remake or a remaster?
3: I think we just wanted to make our own game, really. We felt that we wanted to take advantage of the new mechanics that other games like metroid and that had developed in the first person first person space because it was a first person game really it was kind of like a over the shoulder third person we we wanted to take advantage of those new um those new mechanics and create a story that was was meaningful in and of itself that didn't didn't necessarily have the kind of the bad stuff about the silent hill Mm -hmm. mythos so
2: yeah, but the cult and all of that, do you mean just all the like nightmarish darkness? It's more about the people. Yeah. Uh, it's was, it was about Harry, his daughter, and what happened to them and how he's interpreting or she's interpreting what happened.
3: Yeah, you're completely right. It's difficult to work on a game which has that amount of uh, sort of solid fan base. Uh, and, you know, I worked on a Legacy of Kane game as well. So that's sort of masochistic uh, tendencies there. There is so much caught up in that and there's often not much room to wiggle in terms of the meaning that you're trying to transmit to the player. And also, I would say that the Silent Hill mythos kind of got a bit corrupted at times by twisting some of the more iconic...
2: Tyrion Moonhead. Yeah, what was, he, what was he doing in Silent Hill 5, for well,
3: example? Well, exactly. He's meant to be a something that is very personal to, to James yeah. from Silent Hill 2. and. Is that James? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But but of course, it's like those baddies. You go like, hey, he's a good baddie. He's like, have you played the yeah, game? Yeah. Exactly. No, but he's a great baddie, I mean, he's right? a great
2: villain, mm. right? I don't know.
3: So, <laughs> so, I mean, for example, in Origins, we had to have this character called the Butcher. Very similar, like, Butcher, ha- yeah. He had, had like half a pyramid <laughs> head on his head. And, oh dear, I, I, we didn't really want him there, but he was kind of, <laughs> he was kind of part yeah, of the he deal. he was there. Thrust. He was part of the deal for us creating that game. So... I think we wanted to be able to breathe when we made that. Yeah, I game. think
2: to be honest, it was a very underrated game because it didn't. It, I don't know a lot of people who play Silent Hill and they would say, "Oh yeah, Shadow Memories is one of my favorite games." But I remember playing it and the twist at the end, and it focused on the people a bit more. And I know it was very different because it was ice instead of fog, or or instead of ashes or whatever. And and, but it still has its own uniqueness in a way and the Psycheval I think inspired a lot of other games that came after it I don't think anybody's talking about selling his Shattered Memories everybody's talking hey Until Dawn has a valve or I know this other game has a psyche valve. it's like have you played Shattered Memories <laughs> the oh, original what, like game. all the
0: Telltale games that they, they'll, they'll remember that for later
3: <laughs> they don't I think it's a, yeah. game, a game that stands very much on its own I think it's a bit of a Marmite game for the Silent Hill community I think a lot of people took it on its merits and said, well, this is a good game. Other people were, well, this is definitely not what I was expecting. Um, this is not what I think Silent Hill should be. And, you know, fair enough. It's, it's a, it's a point of view. Mm-hmm. I think if a franchise has ran, like for
1: so long, you, Eventually have to change it up, and I think what you guys ended up doing with like kind of Shadow of Memories is like look at all the new game mechanics that are available to us now, like from current game design. Game designs changed since we did the original Silent Hill, so let's inject some of them in. How can we make still make a Silent Hill game like you you guys did, but with a, I guess a more modern just t- like design take? And I think I think a lot of franchises have to hit that point eventually, and like you said. The unfortunate side of fact to of that is it usually becomes like a marmite game. People either love it, or the diehard fans who just want things to be the same forever won't accept the change exactly.
3: I think in fandom, the word reboot is kind of like kryptonite to people they 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 everyone goes <gasps> and their their hackles rise as they hear this that word and I think that the the circumstances for us were were quite unique as well insofar as We had made a derivative Silent Hill game that was very true to the mechanics and aesthetics and atmosphere of the originals. And we just, I think, we really think we just didn't want to do that again.
0: I I want a VR reboot of Shattered Memories because that will totally work, right? Yeah, brilliant, brilliant, perfect. (laughs) Everyone should do
3: it.
2: Well Half-Life Alex came out and it surprised a lot of people. I think if Silent Hill came out as a VR game it would be incredible. I'm
3: sure that it the I'm sure that it was pitched by Climax. I think Climax is very proud of it and I'm I know that they would explore all avenues to to bring games like that to a new audience.
1: It's just like you obviously mentioned trying to do it as a VR experience. I think exploring horror in VR is still something that's not very widely done and i think there's a lot of untapped potential there obviously you there's a lot of reasons why we have to be careful with doing it because obviously vr is a completely different experience to passively playing something in third person or first person uh, but with so if you could do a horror experience in vr to the quality of half-life alex i think you would be on to a quite remarkable kind of groundbreaking horror experience in vr
0: i think you have to be careful with that though i mean even like half-life alex there's parts of it that it that well scare the bejesus out of me i've just got to say that right and and that's not even that horrible like Resident evil 7 bioshock in vr I was like nope 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 i'm out of here
3: bye who's that x-man who has the the, the visor on his face uh, the, and... the, uh cyclops so, okay so i think horror on vr is like cyclops it's so powerful yeah. <laughs> uh, the, yeah. you have to you have to mask it yeah. you have to Yes, use it like you've got to tone it down exactly you've got to you've got to filter it and and tune it and and be really careful with how you use it because it's 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 uh, you know even uh, was it dread which is this simplest possible game almost is uh, terrifying on vr which one dread Holes. so it's just a kind of walking around a kind of dungeon and there's just things following you and it's just absolutely terrifying But it's
1: enough to make you feel uneasy, right? And that's it. Like you said, it's super simple. But because it's in VR, everything is amplified
3: instantly. I'd love to make a a sort of lynchian horror game in VR. That would be really wonderful. Not relying on that acute sense of being Mm -hmm. chased and scared and jumped out on. But that underlying chronic dread, fear and dread, Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, that might be better. It will be uh, not having jump scares or a lot of like set pieces models, so dizzy up the player, and then you won't be able to play as much. So, something even simple can. Be scary because it's VR. Like we said, it's very different. I remember trying a demo where you—it wasn't even a horror game or anything. You just explored the ocean, and you were—you were put in a cage, and you were lowered down, and you could see the fish. And I'm like, I'm. This is terrifying because I'm underwater, and and there's nothing happening, but I'm scared. It, it wasn't even a horror game, and so so easily, just put someone in the water underneath in VR. It's already scary. I can imagine playing Soma, for example, in VR, and already. Having panic attacks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need jump scares to have panic attacks. Yeah, it's it, it I, I think, is a very interesting um tool I guess to make horror games. Okay,
0: so that's what we're gonna have to do. Like, the level design, podcast team, horror we VR. Could do a Halloween episode maybe. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll throw out a make a like one shot level design game VR that scares the bejesus out of people.
2: Just one long corridor. Yeah, yeah. just yes, one long corridor. <laughs> I was about
1: to suggest try and make something similar to the PT loop. Right. PT loop is very short. It's very atmospheric. So, for instance, if you did that in VR, because everything's amplified. Obviously, I think PT's terrifying anyway. Mm. Like playing yeah. that demo right, was me too. like it. It had it had my like hairs on hairs on the end and everything. And like playing that with headphones, despite you don't do much, it was just like I walked so slow around that house just because of the sound and the audio cues. You know
0: that he's going to jump out, but uh, there's, there's yeah. a chap, and I think his name is Lance McDonald, who's done videos so that he goes behind the scenes of PT and various other games, so he looks like behind. there's kind of a bit of a boundary break behind them. And Lisa, the ghost in PT, sorry, spoilers for a trailer that you'll never be able to play, she's actually behind you all the time. That's where she's attached to, so if you Turn the camera around, you know, like, and your boundary breaking. She's there, you know, like just, just behind you, which is like, oh my god. As a game designer, I got set up by a, uh, I'm, I'm not gonna name and shame, but by someone that did some work for me, and they set up a level, and they put, you know, like in Unreal, you, you can say like, start. He put a player position basically, so I started playing the game, and the moment I turned around, there was a a model that he put there for scale, but it was literally just to the left of my shoulder. So the moment I was like looking around the level to see if it was okay, turned left and there was a guy a foot away from my face. (laughs) I've never jumped out of my skin so far. Nothing was happening. There's no sound or anything like that. So in VR, I think that would have, you know, required a a, a quick... uh, (laughs) You know, I would have banged into something, definitely into my office, in my office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But by jumping up, I think the ceiling was is what I'd banged into.
3: One day I'll tackle VR development. Unfortunately, I've got a very bad motion sickness problem. Uh, me and VR don't get on very well at all. But one day I'll do it.
1: Yeah, a lot of people have, like, that the motion sickness thing you describe. So I remember even when I tried some of the early demos with, like, the DK1 and stuff, like, I don't really have motion sickness, but I felt quite queasy going around i lasted two seconds on off <laughs> a lot of it was the disconnect because someone threw an xbox controller in my hand and i had to use analog movement and i was just like this doesn't this doesn't work at, like at. obviously it's better now we've developed different systems but like when we were first trying to figure it out it was how do we overcome the motion sickness and that's why early vr games you don't really move like you would fixed to the spot and that was kind of about
0: it i think now that we've got like these these systems for movement in vr it's a lot better one of the things that i noticed because in uh, unreal engine you're able to use your vr headset in edit mode so you can be in the scene and you can do things and you complete control but boy like even then you know you can do something and make yourself like just chander immediately because it's like, oh, I've just rescaled the world and I have flung myself across the, the, the world. And like, nope, 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 nope. But I'm sure there's people that, like, you know, like have actually done well. At Creative Assembly, I was
3: given, uh, when we were doing Comp Intel for um, early work on Alien, I was given Condemned 2 to play as a kind of uh, test to see how they did certain things. And uh, uh, Condemned 2, I don't know if you've played it, but it's all uh, well, the Condemned games, they've got a very strong uh, head bob. Because it's you know, you're very slow moving and it, it, it moves around when you get hit you the whole screen rocks and stuff I I had to go down to the chemist and get some anti sickness points because I couldn't <laughs> carry on Wow <Whoa>. <laughs> yeah so I'm I'm terrible I'm just like I'm the canary in the coal mine when it comes to yeah. uh, VR motion sickness I was doing research this weekend playing
0: games is research right Can can we yeah just, absolutely just yeah. charge them to the company.
3: Uh, Uh, (laughs) oh
2: God! i'm researching every day all day
0: then yeah yeah you have to charge it to your company those are all expenses but uh, i was doing one and i realized in this game that i was playing again i don't want to call it out but yeah a lot of head bobbing a lot of moving and i was like okay are you doing something with this is this like part of the story or is this just the the, that you've attached a camera to an idle animation and like now i'm getting
2: it's one of the first things I disable actually when I, if, if it's available in the options, uh, I just, there's no point, I don't like that at all. Even though I don't actually get motion sick generally, it's just annoying me a lot for for that reason, it's just moving up and down, I don't, I don't understand why it needs to exist, like it's the same experience for me without it, so... Definitely, I think there should be options for that if you have it in your game,
1: yeah. I, I remember when um, Mirror's Edge first came out because of the parkour, like free-flowing movement of that all about momentum. That had a lot of issues causing people to have motion sickness. Like the target reticule you get in most first-person games. In Mirror's Edge, it was super, it's super small and because most of the environment is white um, and the target reticule mm-hmm. was also white, it would disappear in some environments. But I remember... Like, I think there was an article or, or a talk i seen when they were talking about like, the design of the original Mirror's Edge. They tried that game without the target reticule. And obviously, the results of people getting motion sickness was, like, sickness was 10 times higher. Because at least with the target reticule, you've got a you've got an anchor point. You've got a point of focus. You understand that it's on the screen. Yeah. yeah um, because But like you say, without that. And obviously, in VR games, it's very rare. You get the target reticule sort of thing. Uh, so we people or developers look at different frames of reference to kind of anchor you in the experience I think there was a paper published about like the nose so like if you had you could see the nose that would be enough uh, and I was just like that doesn't make sense I think it's been defunct since then but I was just like there was so many crazy papers and articles posted about how to get around this stuff but it is still one of those fields like um, in design it was exciting to go into because it was new there were so many challenges and there still is to overcome and you couldn't just copy paste the first person rule book or the third person rule book. You kind of were designing around it.
0: I think this has been a good episode and a good point to end on this inquisition of... uh... (laughs) Mm-hmm. Reduce me to literal sickness yeah. <laughs> wow. uh, 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 And now Rob will run out to get some Dramamine <laughs> yep. Get over the motion sickness of being interviewed and, and uh, hassled But thank you very much for, for, for stepping up to the plate and, uh, and
3: being grilled Thank you very much, yeah, I really enjoyed it And uh, I think there's a whole load of other things we could talk about and I'm sure we will explore them more in, f- in future episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: We have loads of plans. Yes, so sure. if you happen to be listening to this podcast uh, on somebody else's uh, phone, why don't you like and subscribe us? Uh, we are on uh, Spotify and iTunes. And this has been our episode. And see you next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 The Level Design Podcast has been a Command Studio production. Our editor is Matthew Lever, and this episode has been produced by Bridey Rose.